I'm very friendly and very approachable person, but I actually used to play college hockey. <laughs> so women's ice hockey. <laughs> so if whenever I'm in a tough situation and I've got that smile on my face, I just think about, Katie, put the helmet on. <laughs> so I tell myself to put my hockey helmet on and, um, and then I sort of get in that zone. Um, I played hockey in, in college as a, a previous figure skater. So I'm very eloquent, but I love that, you know, sort of be, I, I have a tough edge to me as well. So that's, that's what most people don't know. So sometimes we meet people who appear to us in one way, but once we get to know them, they are in fact very different. Someone who, when allowed, goes into their creative cave, spending months, if not years, pursuing their quest, only to emerge with the work of genius that may change the way the world perceives a particular subject. Well, that is what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world delivered to you via a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 41. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the other conversations. On today's show, I'm talking to Catherine Kaminsky. But instead of me doing the introduction, why don't I let her do it? Either I work in finance and uh, maybe I'll say hedge funds after that. Otherwise, I tend to say I teach finance. Um, But if people ask more specific questions about trend following or hedge funds, I say, well, I work in systematic trading and systematic investing. Thanks for doing that, Katie. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the Top Traders Unplugged website, where you can find great details from today's conversation. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, nice to nice to be here, Niels. Good. Now, Katie, you're a bit different from my usual guests, which so far have been hedge fund managers or CTAs running their own firms and strategies. But I think that you bring such an important perspective on the systematic trading world in general and the managed futures industry in particular that I wanted to make an exception to my usual lineup and bring you on for an in-depth conversation on a number of topics relating to this. And now people 
in the alternative investment industry are very familiar with you and your work. But before we get into your story, I wanted to ask you a slightly different question, a question that I believe a lot of people in our industry find difficult to answer, including myself. So it goes something like this. Imagine you're invited to a cocktail party with people who don't know you. And after a few minutes, someone will come up to you and ask, so Katie, tell me what you do. How do you respond to that? How do you explain what you do? Well, to be honest, um, I usually just smile and say, well, uh, either I work in finance and uh, maybe I'll say hedge funds after that. Otherwise, I tend to say I teach finance. Um, but if people ask more specific questions about trend following or hedge funds, I say, well, I work in systematic trading and systematic investing. And what this means is that it's just a process which systematically allocates um, investments across a broad spectrum of different types of investments in the financial markets. Sure. So. Fantastic. Well, let's stay with you for a little while longer because what I'd like you to do is to tell me your story, how you got into this field in the first place and perhaps a little bit what you were like as a as a little girl growing up and, and feel free to go back as, as far as you want. Well, um, I actually came originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and I would say everything started for me with my sort of severe interest in mathematics. Um, I, for some reason, had always loved math and I spent, you know, I still do math puzzles before I go to sleep, so it's kind of a, a geeky thing. But sure. um, so back in, in high school in Tennessee, I was such a fan of math that I the only place in the world I ever wanted to go was MIT. Um, mm -hmm. So I moved up to Boston and started as an undergraduate at MIT studying electrical engineering. And when I was doing electrical engineering, I got interested in signal processing and sort of cell phones and how do we, you know, how do all the electronics that we have work? Mm -hmm. And I was thought it was so fascinating to sort of understand how to build your own MP3 player or, you know, how, how does a cell phone work and what, how does it work down to the last, you know, circuit? Sure. Um, so that was just sort of my my original passion was actually in electrical engineering. Um, I spent some time working for Qualcomm and other firms and also studying in France. And um, after that, I kind of avoided, I wasn't as interested in, in uh, finance originally just because I just don't think I had the, I didn't understand how important finance was for the world right. and how much it impacted the industry and, and how, you know, prevalent it was and how it was really sort of the force that drives our entire sort of commerce globally. Mm -hmm. um, but then as I got into graduate school, I, I still liked math so much. I didn't even <laughs> want to leave MIT. I wanted to stay there forever. Right. Um, and uh, I decided to do a doctoral degree in operations research, which is basically math applied to everything practical. Okay. And um, after doing I did my first internship in, in finance, actually, and I decided to do it in in France for a French bank because I thought, well, if it's in French too, that's even more exciting. <laughs> so, so I worked on a quant team in France, 
and in a credit risk group and we coded in French and it was very exciting and I just fell in love with finance. I thought, this is exciting, this is so fun, this is so... Um, to be honest, I had very little finance experience. They just gave me the books and said, you know, here's an obligation. <laughs> or, and I was like, okay, that sounds good. What, sure. what are the cash flows? And yeah. I just looked at the math models and, and, and programmed them in. And I later, you know, sort of, it was more hybrid capital and sort of subordinated debt mm-hmm. modeling. And uh, I mean, if you'd asked me that before I walked into that job, I had no idea what it was. Sure. Um, I think most and, people feel that way still. Still, probably. <laughs> yeah. So um, I worked at Societe Generale that summer. And after that, decided that I wanted to, still wanted to do math, but I wanted to work in the area of finance mm-hmm. and math. Right. Um, and then I got this fantastic opportunity to meet uh, Andrew Lowe, mm-hmm. who is sort of a definitely a quantitative finance guru at MIT. And, and in a meeting, he asked me, he said, do you want to teach financial engineering? And I said, yes, right. <laughs> of course. You know, so, so uh, that's how we actually ended up working together is that we, um, he asked me to help him teach a financial engineering class. And mm-hmm. then I ended up teaching with him for about five years and doing research with him at MIT. Um, and he... He and I worked on the topic of financial heuristics, mm-hmm. and most of my thesis was about stopping rules and understanding heuristics that investors uh, use in practice. And you know, to be honest, these days that's a very popular topic. But right. 15 years ago, it was sort of a little bit taboo um, because it wasn't sort of what would be published in the top journal. Right. Um, but I I liked uh, after spending some time doing working also for a hedge fund, working for a bank, I just knew that this was what people do. Yeah. So I didn't, I mean, <laughs> granted, it wasn't maybe the best alignment for the perfect, uh, you know, for academia. But now these days, I actually find that, that heuristics and systematic rules is actually a very big field uh, in finance. Although 15 years ago, it was not. Sure. Or 10 years ago, it was less uh, less popular in the academic community. Um so that's when I first got interested in things like technical analysis and, and trend following. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was more sort of an, an interest of heuristics in general. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after finishing my thesis, and my thesis was on stopping rules, right. um, which also <laughs> very applied in the trend following <laughs> industry. Sure. Um, then I went to the Stockholm School of Economics. Okay. And I was working at the Stockholm School of Economics. And after about a year, I decided to go work in the industry. Okay. Um, I wanted to, you know, the academic job market was a great experience. And I enjoyed working at the Stockholm School of Economics, but I wanted to sort of get my hands a little dirtier. (laughs) Um, So I left academia um, partway still taught and uh, visited the school often, but I joined a Swedish fund of funds, which works in CTAs. Mm-hmm. So um, the fund is, I mean, it's RPM. Sure. It's a well-known fund of funds yeah. who you, you know very well as well. Um, and the great thing that I loved about being at RPM was that if you're in a CTA, CTA fund of funds, you meet all the CTAs. Mm. Um, you meet... The Wintons, the Campbells, the the sort of every single 
manager out there, you, t- you get to meet and you get to hear their story. Um, and you get to analyze what they do yeah. uh, from the outside. And given that perspective, you can sort of learn a lot about both what the CTAs are doing, but also we spend a lot of time in the fund of funds business talking to the pension funds and talking to um, institutional investors and trying to answer the questions for them because they expect us uh, to know all the different managers and to know all the different strategies and how they are put together. Sure. So that, that was a really um, great experience to yeah. uh, sort of move into the, into the C- CTA world. Um, following that, I did sort of a startup and was doing some research. And I ended up uh, back in academia Mm-hmm. And that was sort of an unexpected move and decided to go back to uh, doing research on managed futures. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and then in the summer of, I think it was uh, at some point back, I knew, I knew of ISAM mm-hmm. um, because I had sort of done due diligence on them and I knew several different people from their team. I had never met Alex Grazerman before. Right. But um, I had a friend named Randy Warsager from CME, who's a good friend of mine, um, who would send me sort of articles whenever he thought that would make me very excited because I I love uh, research (laughs) on CTAs. So he sent me articles from Alex and um, Alex had been writing about crisis alpha, which is something that I spend a lot of time doing research on. Mm. And um, when I read his articles, I decided to go and visit him. Because I happened, yeah, I know it was kind of a funny random, but I was at MIT visiting Andrew Lowe, mm-hmm. and um, I hopped on a train and I went down to New York and had a meeting with Alex with the intention to write a paper. Okay. On CTAs, and on the way down there, with after a few minutes of talking to Alex, and Alex is if you, if anyone who knows Alex is he's sort of he knows so much about about this industry and he is sort of a veteran of of implementation of trend following strategies and after just a few minutes of talking to him we i kind of said you know we shouldn't write a paper mm-hmm. you know we need to write the book alex <laughs> and, <laughs> and we kind of looked at each other across the table and, and you know we said sure mm-hmm. let's do it right um and it really sort of happened exactly like that. There was no sort of premeditation. It sort of just was there on the table. And we said, all right, because, um, you know, we are on different continents. Sure, sure. So uh, what, what we would do is sort of occasionally meet up in, in London or New York when possible. Sure. And besides that, we would basically talk on the phone mm. uh, regularly and sort of catch up on the uh, I spend a lot of time talking on the phone here in Scandinavia late at night <laughs> or, or early in the morning, uh, his time. Mm. Um, and that's how the book came about. And the point of the book for our sake is that I was always really frustrated with the fact that academics, the academia in general, had somewhat ignored the field of trend following as a sort of viable strategy until very recently, mm. about 2012, in the work of AQR and sort of Peterson and, and his co-authors. Um, and I felt after talking to so many investors that there's tons of white papers out there, mm. but 
most investors would, especially the sophisticated investors, would really enjoy to have sort of a an all-inclusive, objective guide yeah. to, to trend following. And Alex and I, given that we both have sort of an academic side of us, sure. Sure. felt that this was a good way to um, come about this, this project. Mm. It's extraordinary. I mean, that story in itself is extraordinary, isn't it? That you more or less on your, on your first meeting decide to write what may turn out to be kind of the definitive work on, on managed futures and, and trend following. So, um, I, you know, it just, sh- just shows that life is sometimes very unpredictable and, uh, and fascinating. But as I said, you know, I mean, it's fascinating in itself to uh, hear that and, and how it came about. And, and um, you know, stories are important. I think that it was um, Lady Thatcher that once said that if we don't understand history, we might be condemned to repeat the mistakes. So why don't you take the stage now and tell us the history of trend following and obviously based on the research and the studies you and Alex did um, in writing the book. And maybe I should just clarify that the book uh, is Trend Following Will Manage Futures, the search for crisis alpha. Uh, Yes. So, I mean, I think if I go back for for just a second, this concept of trend following is something that has been passed on throughout the ages. Mm. Um, I think we start our book by saying, um, find a trend and follow it is a common adage that has been passed on throughout Mm -hmm. the centuries. Mm -hmm. And this is quite, you know, sort of one of the points that we begin the book with is that people have been using and following the, (laughs) following the, the herd, following the crowd Mm. for, for as long as anybody ever has imagined. And Mm. essentially trend following is simply following a a trend that you may see. Um, And if you look across history, this particular approach, if done the right way, can actually be very stable over time. Um, And that's what we see in the, in the beginning of the book is there's an 800 year analysis. Right. I mean, granted that, you know, any of these analyses are not in, you know, sort of empirically sort of hardcore research, but they give us some, some perspective Mm. on sort of, wait a minute, you know, is this something that I could have done throughout the ages? And I think if you take that and you think about what trend following is about, trend following is about following something that looks like it's going up. Mm -hmm. And cutting your losses when you think it's not. Mm-hmm. And so it's very simple. I mean, granted, the way that we do it today is much more sophisticated and much more systemat- systematic and sophisticated. But, I mean, the concept is really simple. Sure. And I think, you know, in a sense, that's a little bit, well, it's quite interesting to me because I think sometimes managers overcomplicate the message of trend following because they want to sound like what they do is really sophisticated, but in reality, it's it's really not that hard. Definitely not. And I mean, I think I spent a lot of my research time thinking about stop loss mm. and why do people use stopping rules, for example. Mm. And there's a lot of behavioral reasons for this. You know, I mean, 
And trend following is, is exactly the same. I mean, you create some systematic rules to help you control your behavior, to help mm -hmm. you to make decisions. Um, and so for something like stop loss as an example, um, we use a stop loss because we know that we may not be able to get ourselves to stop the loss yeah, sure. uh, without like making the decision a priori. Um, and trend following strategies and the concept of trend following is about creating a simple set of rules, a simple heuristic for how do you actually profit from moves mm. up or down? And um, if they exist, how do you sort of handle them? Mm. Because... Yeah. So when we start our book, actually, one of the interesting graphs, the first graph that we have is actually performance of the S&P 500 for the last 20 odd years and then performance of trend following. And if you just look at that graph, there clearly are trends, mm -hmm. long trends that exist in history in different markets. So if we sort of have that approach, there may be some ways to sort of develop heuristics to help us to handle the ups and the downs mm. over time. I want to I want to try and stay with the theme of the history and trend following and just ask you, how did you find sort of evidence of trend following taking place going back so many years? Because we obviously, many of us remember the last 5, 10, 20 years. But once you sort of get past that and... Um, you know, for most investors, uh, we're not in the markets, uh, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. How how did you observe or identify signs of trend following back then? Well, I mean, I think in the, the beginning, the beginning of our book starts with an 800 year analysis. Mm -hmm. And that data, I mean, you have to think of it as an abstraction. Right. You know, imagine that, you know, 200 years ago, that you're sitting there looking at prices for rice or, mm. you know, or not oil, but, but not 200 years ago. Um, so you're looking at prices for lean hogs. Sure. I mean, there's clearly maybe dealers that are selling, selling these particular prices. So you have to abstract that the historical record that we have of those prices represents sort of an aggregate view of how those markets behaved over history. Mm. If you see it that way, um, then you sort of take this abstraction with the idea that what if I was the type of person that just said, if I see things are going up in the last 12 months, mm -hmm. I buy. Yeah. If I see things are going down, I sell if I can. Sure. And do that simple thought analysis, mm -hmm. not complicated rules, but basically just looking at history, 12 months, buy or sell. Mm -hmm. And you do that over history, equal weighted, and then we examine how that performs, and the performance is relatively stable mm -hmm. and somewhat, I mean, intuitive to me as um, was what you see with modern day trend following. But modern day trend following is obviously much more sophisticated, but the concept is exactly the same. Yeah. I think also you, um, am I right in saying that you found actually some quotes from some I don't know what it was. Was it a politician or something like that um, who actually used words that I think we use nowadays in describing trend following? Yes, this uh, quote is from David Ricardo, who was a legendary political economist. Okay. Um, and this is sourced from a book called The Great Metropolis in 1838. Okay. Um, and he said... 
cut short your losses and let your profits run on. Right. <laughs> so I sounds mean, very familiar, doesn't it? It's almost 200 years old, but yeah. uh, it's the same concept. Extraordinary. Now, lots of things to go into uh, our conversation today. And clearly you've been very busy writing your book and teaching students and educating them about trend following. That's a big part of your life. But what do you do when you're not doing this? What, what does Katie like to do when it's not about trend following? Outside of work or? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I really like sports. Okay. Um, I'm a big sports fan. I like uh, not watching them, but actually sure. doing them. Okay. Um, I like anything sports related. Um, and I think that's why I like finance, actually, why too. Because mm. it's a little bit more of a, an exciting uh, challenge. I also have two children, so yeah, pretty. <laughs> that's why I laughed. Because I'm what, what do I like to do? Exactly. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Because uh, I'm pretty busy with that, too. Um, and uh, we we like to do to be outside a lot here in Sweden. I mean, sure. it's a, a beautiful country here. So yeah. try and get outside in the in the Swedish archipelago and things like that <laughs> when we can. Sure, fantastic. Now, before we go into sort of um, the next topic as such, I want to stay with the theme of history, but in a broader context. Um, we talked about sort of the history of trend following. But I think it's fair to say that trend following, perhaps you could say, is built upon three things. Data, which relates to history. Then there's some science. And then there's kind of the, the art. Talk to me about what you think about these three building blocks when you hear them. Well, I think this is an important concept because in, in our book, we kind of focused on all three, history, science and art. And I think one of the things that uh, often we academics tend to forget is that history is very important because history provides, it sort of shapes how we perceive things mm -hmm. and it builds contextual reference, uh, relevance. Um, mm -hmm. It gives us contextual um, relevance for what we do. So we started with history in the book, well knowing that sort of historical analysis is fraught with, uh, with issues. Sure. But we thought that it was important to tell that story. On the other hand, we also focused a lot on how do you create a science, a structure around the art, which then turns into art. Sure, yeah. So I think our book, in some sense, is much more about the science. Mm -hmm. And then we give details in terms of how art can be added to it. So I would say that the science of trend following is understanding how to build a system, mm -hmm. okay. what properties are important in building that system, sure. what uh, statistical properties to expect of the strategy, how to understand how to combine different components of a trend-following system. Sure. Um, and I'd say that the art is actually in the application. Okay. So if you imagine any sort of trading strategy or any 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 hedge fund strategy in general, the science is simply how they construct their process. Mm. But the art is what makes one manager different from another. Exactly. Yeah. Now, sort of, I think it's fair to say that 
science and art um, and looking at that in, in, in terms of your work, you've clearly put a lot of time into filling what maybe I could call a lack of academic acceptance of trend following, which you alluded to earlier. Is it fair to say maybe that this has become a bit of a, a quest for you that you want to kind of set the, the record straight uh, in the academic world about trend following? Yes, I, w- I would say so in the sense that, you know, as a graduate student, I had a, a funny anecdote as I was studying stop loss rules. And, and I, I sat down with one of my colleagues at MIT and, mm-hmm. and he basically told me that people maximize their expected utility functions. Mm-hmm. And I just got so infuriated because I said, no, they don't. I mean, it's not true. My father is a clinical neurologist, so mm-hmm. I spent most of my life hearing about how the brain works you right. know, over breakfast, yeah. um, which, you know, it, it kind of affects the way you see things. And at, from that point, even as a grad student, I've always believed that it's really sort of life is about applying heuristics and rules. Mm. And we need to understand the implications of these rules and these sets of rules in order to understand what to expect and and which rules are good and which are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that perspective, um, it was very obvious to me that the study of heuristics and trend following as one of them is just part of the entire investment management process. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we sort of dynamically over time make decisions and we use heuristics that we adapt over time to do so means that sort of a static frameworks in the academic world don't cut it Mm. to explain things like what we do. And the the academic community is really opening up to this. Um, In the last few years, basically the fact that we can now be called momentum (laughs) means (laughs) that suddenly we now have this sort of buzzword, right. which means that we fit into a bucket which is accepted in, in the industry. Um, both, I mean, industry has accepted us, but without the acceptance of the academics, we have to understand that those academics train most of our the academics and the sort of sure. education trains the people who are in the investment management right. field today. Yeah. I mean, I... We, when we learn about finance, we create a framework mm. for what we understand and what we think is okay and not okay mm. and how we can think about risk. And we sort of have the ability to understand things in that context. Mm. If you take a context like the efficient markets hypothesis, unfortunately for something like trend following, it, it doesn't, it's not possible. Right. I think in some sense that was sort of the quest was to explain um, both. That's why we go into sort of theoretical foundations. We talk about risk taking and we try and see sort of what framework does explain why this might work. Hmm. I use the word quest. You've used the word quest. And as you know, a quest is really striving towards a goal. But part of that is enduring a certain amount um, for lack of a better word, suffering, it seems. Has there been any suffering <laughs> in your journey? I mean, it's you know perhaps a bit philosophical uh, in this case, but if there has been obstacles or, or difficulties, how, how would you frame that when you have a quest to achieve what you wanted to achieve and which you seem to have achieved with putting this book together? 
Well, I mean, I think I, I, I think this is an important sort of philosophical point. And I often think that if you don't fail, you will never succeed. Mm. So something that's easy to do is often less exciting over the long run to achieve. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, from the beginning, I always knew that this is the answer. Um, and I've continually sort of always believed that I, I will find a way to explain it. Mm. And, and over the years, the more that I ask myself these questions, the more that interesting answers come up. And I think I'm just kind of the person who somebody asks me a question. If I don't know the answer, I will be irritated <laughs> until <laughs> I figure it out. So, I mean, it means that, you know, I'll spend a lot of time thinking about stuff. And, mm. and in the end, I don't, I always have to have the answer in some sense. And I think actually spending a lot of time at MIT really helped me with that mm -hmm. because, because at MIT uh, is sort of like training. You know, you do lots and lots and lots of hard exercises all the time. Mm. And, and you, kind of, you kind of learn to sort of continue to, to fight towards your goal. Sure. And that, that, yeah, you know, so a quest is always fun to follow. It gives you a direction. Sure. That's good. Absolutely. Now, I want to stick with the cover of your book and especially the last part of the title, The Search for Crisis Alpha. Now, I know you are responsible for co coining this term, crisis alpha. Um, and I want to talk to you about this. But before I do so, I also want to offer a slight concern that I have about the perception of the role of trend following in a crisis. And it goes something like this. The way I see trend following being positioned, and this is not new, this is something that's happened for, for many, many years, It's kind of a hedge against equity markets um, if and when they run into uh, trouble. And that always gets labeled as we're in some kind of crisis. And that's obviously where the crisis alpha is linked to. But there are far more bonds than equities in the portfolios of investors. And I never really hear any debate about trend following as quote-unquote, a hedge or a protection against periods where bonds might run into trouble. And, you know, especially in a time where bond prices are, to say the least, very high, um, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? And, and is there a concern that when we hear the word crisis alpha and trend following, that people automatically think that this is relating to equities? Yes, I mean, we, we, do, we actually take that point up some in, in the book. Okay. And um, I think, you know, maybe if I sort of step back and talk about where Crisis Alpha came from, sure. where this original paper came from, to kind of give some contextual reference for that. Um, I was at a meeting with uh, Hans Folian, who's the CIO of AP2. Mm -hmm. And... Hans turned to me and said, I don't understand. Tell me why this, why does this work mm. during this period of time? And I stepped back and I mean, everybody knew that trend following tends to do well during, during a crisis period. Sure. And I just was so irritated that I couldn't answer that question <laughs> that I actually 
thought about it for some period of time. And I went back and did some analysis and did some research. And I said, my goodness, you know, this is pretty incredible. On certain days when things are really bad for equity, and I'll get back to the other markets. Sure, sure. Um, things are, something is happening. Mm -hmm. And it's not just happening in equities. Most of it is happening outside of equities. Right. And it's not just happening in commodities. It, it can happen in, you know, rates or FX or here or there. And I started looking at these days where there's these big moves in equities. And I found that, and this is going to be a geeky point, that the days during these periods of time actually first order stochastically dominated the other days. Now, mm -hmm. what that means is that the cumulative distribution of these particular days is actually before the the distribution of the days outside. And right. This is Break that down. <laughs> Break that down for me, please. Okay. I'll try it again. Okay. <laughs> so imagine I'm gonna. This is going to be. Uh, I'm imagine I'm trying to explain this to an MBA to one of my MBA students. Do that, please. So okay. Um, so if I take the days mm -hmm. where equity markets go down. Yeah. And I look at a simulated trampling system. Sure. And I take um, something which is called the cumulative distribution function. Mm -hmm. So how that works is you think of it as building. Um, when you build a cumulative distribution function, it's mm -hmm. as if you take the, the values and you put them into a bag. Right. And so you start collecting them. Yeah. So if something has a big flat tail, mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot of mass on the left side, mm -hmm. and then it's going to grow up less slowly. Sure. And then, um, so what you can do actually in, in, the, in one particular statistical test you can do is you can look at if, if one dominates the other. Right. And what that means is that the distribution, the cumulative distribution, is farther to the left. Mm-hmm. Was the one that dominates to the right, and then you have another to the left. Sure. So if you have two distributions, one that is to the right of the other completely, then it's considered first-order okay. domination. Okay. And if you take stocks and bonds, this relationship doesn't hold. Okay. Because they cross. Right. And why is this the case? It's because stocks have fat tails. Mm-hmm which means that they, they end up collecting more of these worst scenarios first. Right before bonds, but then they have much better performance later. So their distributions actually cross. Okay. So it makes sort of like a, a loop. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at trend following returns in a certain, some of the sort of daily analysis that I looked at mm -hmm. based on a sort of a filtering rule that I used, I could find periods where there was first order stochastic dominance. And I have basically never, see, very rarely seen that in financial data. Okay. And I said, this is just, there's something here okay. that's just different. And um, I mean, so I thought, okay, these particular moments, something is happening where these strategies are adapting to the scenario of a financial, sort of a, a crisis scenario in a way that, that is unexpected. Yeah. And then if you go back and you think about the efficient markets hypothesis, Futures markets should not be, should be so competitive that you can't make money, mm. right? Because, I mean, they're obviously the most liquid, the, you know, sort of the most efficient. Mm. And then I thought, wait a minute, maybe it's actually the case that they're a little bit like Buffett, that they, 
they are liquid when others are not. Right. So this actual, the fact that they are so liquid and adaptable and in futures is what gives them an advantage over the others mm -hmm. in these scenarios. And that's where I said, okay, so what are they getting at this period of time when, when things are sort of a mess? Well, they're getting alpha. Mm -hmm. Because they're finding opportunities that are up and beyond the sort of normal risk measures. Mm. So I said, aha, now I have a buzzword. Right. It's crisis alpha. Sure. So, um, and the concept of crisis alpha came out of that entire story. It mm. originated from a, a question that someone asked me that I couldn't answer. Mm. And then I went back and did a research report on it, which I actually have never... <laughs> never published, but then I wrote a short article mm -hmm. for the CME group sure. to complement this research paper, uh, which was meant to sort of be for the entire industry. Mm. And that was the original paper, which is called, uh, it's called A Short Guide to Investing in Managed Futures in, in Search of Crisis Alpha, <laughs> A sure. Short Guide to Investing sure. in Managed Futures. Sure. That was in 2011. And um, so now going back to your point about bonds and um and commodities. That's something that really bothered me as well, mm -hmm. because I kept getting that question all the time. So um, in the book, we talked about crisis alpha for commodity indices. We talk about bond crisis alpha. We talk about commodity crisis alpha. But over the course of writing this book, I actually have moved more towards a, a new idea. Okay. And this is the idea of divergence. Right. And what we do in the book is we explain that um, trend-following strategies are long divergence. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, you know, the most divergent moment in, in history is always crisis, right. wherever it comes from. So, yeah, the crisis alpha is part of that. That's extreme divergence. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the story is a little bit more clear to me now that it's really about being long divergence in markets and divergence can be driven by many things. Yeah. The reason that equity is the central point is that most of us have a whole biased equity markets. Um, our focal point from an emotional standpoint are equity markets. So right. they have a little bit more impact mm -hmm. on the psychology of the general marketplace. And that's why they can be more extreme, but they're in no way uh, the only thing that drives divergence. Sure. I want to talk about sort of the convergent and, and divergent strategies. And I'd love for you to explain this. Um, but, but I have to say, I mean, I think certainly that many investors are perhaps not, uh, and maybe we don't have enough data, but um, it'll be interesting to see how trend following uh, may actually also be very, very useful in a period where we get a massive crisis in the uh, bond markets, which on a personal note, I would say looks very likely in the next few years. Um, but take, let's take it back to the story about divergent and convergent strategies. And, and let's um, be sure that we're mindful that not all listeners are familiar with these terms. So maybe you can break it down in your usual good um, explanatory way. Okay, so, I mean, if you step back for a second and you think about risk as a concept, mm -hmm. risk is really sort of what we face every day in every aspect of our life. And it's sort of a dynamic process. 
And how we handle risk depends on both what our frame of reference is as an individual, mm-hmm. um, our experiences over the past, and also our beliefs. Right. So if we think about that, those three things come together to give us an idea about which type of strategy we're going to use mm. in any risk situation, whether it's personal or financial. Um, so convergent risk-taking strategies are used when we believe that the world is somewhat stable, mm-hmm. knowable, and understandable, and quantifiable. And many, many risks in life actually are somewhat uh, convergent sure. or quantifiable. And when we believe that the world is like that, then we tend to apply one set of strategies, convergent risk-taking strategies. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other Can hand... Can you give me an example of a convergent uh, yes. strategy? Sure. <laughs> um, so a good... I'll, I'll get there in a second. So let me okay. explain the two first uh, separately. And then I'm going to show you some examples of both... Pra- I'll explain some, some practical examples and sure. also a trading strategy. Perfect. So the difference between convergent and divergent is that we all know that, I mean, Taleb has made this very famous with this, mm. you know, black swan, is that life is about risk, but it's also about uncertainty. Mm. So uncertainty is when the context, the, the conditions and situations, you know, you're facing are unknown to you and unquantifiable. Sure. So when we feel that the world is governed by uncertainty, we have a very different approach to how we handle risk-taking. So let me explain the difference to you and give you an example. Sure. So if you're a convergent risk-taker, you have a particular view. Let's say that you view that equity markets are going to go up, as an example. Sure. If equity markets go up, you tend to take profit on that. Mm. When they go down, you'll tend to do the opposite. You'll say, wait a minute, I know that equity markets go up over the long run. This looks like a buying opportunity. Mm. I should actually double my bet (laughs) or at least hold my bet and not sell. So in that sense, over time, when you're convergent, when you win, it reaffirms to you what you believed. Right. When you lose, it actually goes against your fundamental belief structure, Mm -hmm. which is sort of a, a threat in some sense, causing you in some sense to often reaffirm your beliefs. Now, divergent is the opposite. If you imagine a scenario where you have no idea if A, B, or C is going to do better than the others, Mm. what you'll do is you'll invest or put a small amount of investment in each of them. Mm. And if one of them starts to do well, you'll say, hmm, this could be it. I don't know. But (laughs) let's, you know... A could be the one. So you'll double your bet on the thing that's going well. And every time you lose, you don't have any prior sort of expectations about a particular position or particular view. So you'll Mm -hmm. cut your losses. So those two philosophical views are, they're very different. And for those of you who know any, I mean, you yourself being a trend following manager, you know that trend following managers in general are divergent. When they're asked what their view is about the dollar, they may give a, a view, but they don't. They would change their view as soon as their indicators <laughs> said something else. Yeah. Um, global macro investors are not the same. As same with uh, you know value investors, they believe in the value of a particular company. Sure. And it really depends whether they work. If 
the world is actually governed by risk or uncertainty. So um, let me give you, you asked for some examples. Let me give some examples outside of finance. Yeah, and Also great. some examples in finance. Okay. Um, one of my favorite sort of analogies is actually social networking. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, I have a lot of Swedish friends who I think in Sweden it's a sort of very focused on having a good close network of friends sure. over a long horizon. And if you're socially a convergent risk taker, that means that you find a small group of people that you know, that you believe in, mm. and you nurture that, those relationships. Mm. And bringing in some new, but not as many new. Sure. A divergent risk taker socially actually is one of those social butterflies mm. who goes from table to table, <laughs> knowing everybody, and waiting until the next big opportunity comes. Yeah. So they cut their losses very well. They have very good strategies for that. <laughs> they find a way to go to the next table very easily. Sure. Um, so that's an example in sort of your personal life. Mm. But another good example that I have used with some consultants and, and with other investors that I think is a good one is the world of private equity. Okay. In the world of private equity, there are two, two common streams. One is venture capital and the other is sort of the, the more mature leveraged buyout um, stage investing right. for private equity. The predominant strategy type in the mature world of private equity is actually more of a convergent approach, mm-hmm. which means that you find the companies that you believe in, that you believe are undervalued, and you invest a lot in those companies. Right. And you do a lot of the fundamental analysis to sort of confirm your beliefs and make sure that you're doing the right prudent thing. Sure. On the other hand, the world of venture capital and entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. there is so much uncertainty. Yeah. So what successful um, venture capitalists do is they go out with a small amount of initial investments and they invest across a basket of many interesting and possibly exciting entrepreneurs. They do analysis, but they just can't do the same type of analysis of cash flows and mm. potential earnings that their friends in the LBOs do mm. because it's just not possible. Sure. So in that case where you're dealing with risk and uncertainty, things that are hard to predict, it's much better to put small investments, which means you limit your losses on the downside hoping that one of these new startups will be the next big LinkedIn Mm. or Skype or um, Facebook. Sure. And the profile of these is very consistent with what we see in in our world, which is a trend-following world. Trend-following is just a systematic example of a divergent risk-taking strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can we talk about convergent and divergent strategies without touching upon what you also uh, write about which is the adaptive market hypothesis um the adaptive market hypothesis is a what's so maybe i can explain what the adaptive market hypothesis is so that i can kind of give you my my frame of reference but um starting in around 2004 professor andrew lowe from mit sort of put forth the idea of the adaptive markets hypothesis. Mm -hmm. This hypothesis is an alternative and a complement to both the world of behavioral finance, which is really a world of psychology, and the world of efficient markets, which is more sort of a physics 
view of the world mm -hmm. where you see F equals MA. Right. And if you look on sort of a spectrum, psychology and physics are very, very far apart. Mm. And what Andrew sort of brought forth, which is a really fascinating way to think about it, is that markets are much more like evolutionary biology. Right. Somewhere in between, where the psychologists have some things to say and the physics matters too. Mm. So if I want to give you a definition of the adaptive markets hypothesis, it's an approach to understanding how markets evolve, how mm -hmm. opportunities occur, and how market players succeed or fail based on the principles of evolutionary biology. Okay. So the concept in that, based on Andrew's work, is to see the market as an ecology. Mm -hmm. And to understand who succeeds and fails based on those principles. Mm. So competition will drive who succeeds. Resources which are available will drive profits. Mm. And sort of the evolution of our industry is a function of the players that are involved in the industry and the resources that are currently available. So, so you asked me to connect this sure. to conference. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what that means is that, you know, depending on the environment, mm. some, for, at some periods of time, convergent makes sense. Sure. At some periods of time, divergent. But if you want to be adaptable over a long horizon and right. survive, you need to be both following the herd mm. and convergent, mm. but you also need to be divergent mm. so that you can innovate, adapt, and sort of be more robust sure. in times when, when markets are changing drastically. Sure. No, absolutely. And I think also, I think you may be mentioned this earlier, and I think it's an important point because often people believe that trend following by definition is just a long volatility strategy. But what you're really saying is it's long divergent. Yes. I mean, of course, divergence and volatility is somewhat related, but it's not the same. Yes. Divergence and volatility are correlated. Yeah. Uh, they're positively correlated, maybe at 20%. Mm. The reason is that if you have, so I was just giving a, a talk about this recently for, for the CME. And what I said was that if you have low volatility, you tend to have low divergence. Mm, sure. um, but if you have high non-directional volatility, so that means sort of where volatility is going, where things are going up and down and up and down, but they're yeah. not really going anywhere. Mm. This is actually a nightmare yeah. for a divergent trend following strategy. So <laughs> there's no divergence in that. It's actually low divergence. But if you have high directional volatility, then you have high divergence. Yeah. So divergence is more if you take, it's basically the amount of discernible trend in mm. price. So if you take the sort of over a horizon and you divide the amount of movements, you're actually taking the volatility out. Mm. So if you have lots of volatility, the divergence is really the signal to noise ratio in prices. So when there's lots of volatility, there's lots of noise. Sure. And therefore, divergence is not, is not very high. No, no, absolutely. Now, Katie, I can tell you one thing from practical experience with these strategies, and that is in the last couple of years, investors have not put on a big smile when you call them and you say you're a CTA. But in fact, you've written about something you call the CTA smile. So I want to find out a little bit about how CTAs can put a smile back on these investors' face. What does a CTA smile really mean? Well, CTA smile comes from the fact that when you plot uh, CTA returns or, uh, as a function of 
let's say equity markets, they tend to smile at you <laughs> in some sense that that when equity markets have done really badly, yeah. these strategies tend to do very well. Mm -hmm. And then when equity markets do well, they tend to do well also. Right. Um, but when we're sitting in a situation where uh, we're in the middle, then we're at the bottom of the smile, which is less, less exciting. But um, what I would say is that as soon as as investors understand the complementary relationship, for those that understand the complementary relationship between convergent and divergent strategies, then it's not really a question about the current time time environment. It's more sort of a question of having a properly diversified portfolio. Um, if you believe in the adaptive markets hypothesis, one of the first things is that risk premia are time varying. Mm -hmm. And that strategy's success will wax and wane over time. Sure. So if you have a period like the last few years, in the grand scheme of, of trend flowing over the centuries, it's just a small bleep in history. But, you know, we saw this with the long short equity strategy <laughs> was very out of favor in, you know, 2008, and 9, sure. Sure. 10 and 11. And then, you know, recently I've just heard, you know, there was a huge... That's everything that anybody could talk about. Yeah. And then as soon as something else happens again, we'll be you know, sort of in the favor again. And it's, it's sort of a, it's behavioral cycles. And, and for those who are sophisticated investors, we have to just continually tell them that, you know, to do well over time, you need to have different approaches in your basket. And we happen to be one that's very complementary to most of the things that, um, that investors are looking for. Actually, someone was asking me about this the other day. Um, it was someone from Cambridge Associates was asking me a question about this. And, and he was asking, you know, a lot of people are invested in value. Mm -hmm. And value is a great strategy. Sure. No problem. But the problem with value is it doesn't always work. There are periods of time where it struggles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it turns out that something like trend following has a negative 20% correlation or up with value. Sure. So when you're creating a, a portfolio, you need to be able to add strategies that are complementary to the ones that you believe in. Mm -hmm. And as we continue, as you probably do as well, as we continue to sort of tell the story of trend following in an objective, constructive and non-biased way, then uh, more people will understand. Mm. Yeah, no, very true. And hopefully smile. <laughs> That would be nice to uh, put a smile back on investors' face with trend following. Now, I want to jump back to some of the questions and topics that I normally talk to my guests about. And I know um, it's not straightforward to relate this to, to your work, but I'm going to do my best. The next topic I normally talk about is a little bit about how a manager will organize their organization and build a strong organization. But in your case, I just want to focus on one thing, and that's research, because that's your obviously area of expertise. So investors put a lot of effort and emphasis, I should say, on the research capability of a manager, and rightly so. Research is very important. But if you were going to put together a strong research team as a manager, 
What would you be looking for? How would you do that? Well, I think the most important, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time teaching also behavioral finance. And sure. I think the most important, and ironically, to create a good research team, the most important thing to do is to be aware of your own personal biases. Right. Um, and this is sort of rule number one. So we basically, to create a successful research team, you need to have a structure which is going to help you create heuristics, mm-hmm. <laughs> which will help you to avoid some of the common pitfalls that we as you know, sort of biased human beings have. And mm. one, one of the major aspects which is important in, in analysis to start with will be peer analysis of ideas, right. but also sort of a, a very, very keen eye on the sort of limitations of backtesting right. and understanding sort of a priori post distributions in sample, out of sample, and how to sort of get a framework that properly accounts for these biases. Because when you look at track records from managers, it's always at least, you know, (laughs) there's always a bias because we as human beings only report the things that we succeed with. Mm. Um, we don't often report the things that we don't. Sure. So as a result, we need to have very, very strict guidelines to be objective on why, you know, why this particular research may actually just be data snooping or data data mining. Mm. Um, and I think that, that that is sort of still the greatest challenge in any research team is how do you find good results, make sure they're robust, and also be very aware of your selection biases sure. um, over time. What about this thing about, you know, 50 PhDs versus one or two or none for that matter? I mean, how do you see that? I know you're a PhD yourself, but how do you, how do you see sort of that role that often is quite important when investors make the decision, to be frank, they look at the size of the research team and think, oh, he's got 50 PhDs, he must be better. But how do you see that in the real world? Well, I mean, as a PhD myself, <laughs> they, they are both pros and they're cons. Sure. And, and I say that not all PhDs are created equal. Sure. Um, that's an important point. The, the one, I'll say, on the positive side, the one aspect of having a PhD that is helpful Yeah is the fact that you have to sort of learn the peer review and critical process. Right. So that's one of the advantages of, of doing a PhD is that you have that practice. That doesn't mm. mean that somebody else can't do that. Um, but it is one of the, the advantages that you are trained in the peer review and the sort of to be a little bit more critical. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, for those of you that work with PhDs, we... Um, we also can tend to be a little bit more stubborn. Mm. So um, I would say that I I think that this 50 or 100 PhD thing is sort of, it really depends. Mm. And this is where the science has to be done right and the mm. art has to be done right. So I would see a smaller firm, like a, a smaller firm is more like a startup company. You know, you have a few people that can drive really innovative ideas. If you have a very large team of quants and PhDs, it can work tremendously well as long as it's properly managed. Right. 
And it's sort of like, you know, I think we had talked about this in the past, you and I, but, but when you take a small company versus a large company, you can have fantastic results with both. Both of them depend on how they're managed. Mm. And um, this is something that I think investors, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have this bias in finance already mm. that we see that people always invest in larger companies yeah, and not always sort of the value companies. Sure. Uh, it depends, right? So, I mean, I think that that's a that's a tough question to answer because there's both a yes and a no to that that question, and I think it really requires an investor to actually ask some more questions about how do you if you have fifty PhDs, yeah. how do you handle that? I mean, sure. How do you collaborate all of those ideas, <laughs> you yeah. know, at the same time? And and uh, if you have none, so what what have you done to sort of get up to speed with some of those issues that 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 PhDs have training for. Mm. So peer analysis, critical review, backtesting, and, 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 so, and so further. Sure, sure. I don't know. I mean, you obviously speak to both many managers and, and institutions. And I just wonder, firms with big research teams and whether they're PhDs or not doesn't really matter, but big teams, big budgets, how much do you think that researching you know methods of increasing capacity how much do you think actually is spent on that particular point which in my mind is not necessarily a benefit to the investor it's not about creating better models or new strategies it's really just about increasing the amount of money we can manage using you know the same strategy what's your view on that so i mean on, on this as well, I have, I think it's also, you know, there's not a clear cut answer. It's both sure. yes and no again. And what I'd say is that, you know, in the, on this, there's a spectrum. So as you have a larger team, there are some advantages to that because mm. you have more people to compare your ideas with. You can sort of innovate and sort of go in new directions. And maybe you have capacity to adapt your art mm. of your strategy. Maybe you have a sophisticated uh, risk management system and you have very sophisticated trading algorithms, which you can can differentiate yourself from a smaller manager. Um, but I'd say one of the major, the major issues with um, why sort of a larger manager some, sometimes has some, some appeal to the investors is operational. Sure. Um, and, so from a from an operational due diligence standpoint, it's easier sometimes to have more established. But what's the barrier? Is the barrier a hundred million, or is it one hundred and fifty, or sure. is it five hundred? And that that I don't really know. But I mean, I'd say if you look at a manager who has a hundred or two hundred million, it's a little harder for them to have as much of the infrastructure. Although outsourcing today has actually gotten uh, much much better. Sure. Um, so I'd say that, yeah, I mean, there's always an ability to sort of pay for a, something that, that is trying to, to uh, raise more capacity. But I'd say that it's both logical and, and illogical at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Investors are looking for safety because they see a large brand mm. and they hope that, that that will provide them also some some safety themselves because their peers are invested in those sure. and they have a lot of personal risk as well sure. so for their own careers yeah 
Um, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the word track record, and I just wanted to ask from your perspective, sort of from a, Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.